Jesus is risen. There we go. Jesus is risen. All right. Well, it's true. It's true this weekend. It's actually true every day in the life of a Christian. It'll be true every day of your life until you and I see Jesus face to face and we will be risen with him. It's a great hope. It's our hope. Well, we're continuing our sermon series through the book of Acts. The devil can take down a solo Christian, but he cannot penetrate a band of Christian brothers and sisters who link arms to advance the gospel. That's a quote from one theologian's endorsement of a small biography of William Carey that I've been reading recently. People know the name of William Carey. He's a famous missionary to India. I think I've mentioned him in one of my introductions recently. But most people don't know the names of Andrew Fuller, or John Ryland, or John Sutcliffe, or Samuel Pierce, or William Ward, or Joshua Marshman. Those men were key ministry partners of William Carey, without whom William Carey would probably not be a famous name that you or I know. Strategic partnerships oftentimes accomplish more than just one person can accomplish on their own. The Lord oftentimes puts people together to accomplish some part of his grand plan of redeeming people. Churches are ministry partnerships. We don't pick people based on a skill set and put them together and invite them into the church, but the Lord gives us different gifts for the building up of the body and the accomplishment of the purpose that he's given to the church. He's gathered us here at Covenant Hope Church to be partners for a purpose. I even know some churches who've chosen to call church membership church partnership. And it's not without some biblical basis to do that. Paul often calls his fellow Christians partners in Scripture. Twice he does that in his letter to the Philippian church. And Philippi is where we're going to find Paul and his ministry partners by the end of our passage this evening. There, he and his gospel partners see a diverse group of three key people and even more come to Christ, people who would have formed the beginnings of the Philippian church. If we wanted to sum up the message of the passage this evening, it would go something like this. Form gospel partnerships led by God to strengthen churches and evangelize all people. Let me say it one more time. Form gospel partnerships led by God to strengthen churches and evangelize all people. There's just gonna be two points this evening, partnership to strengthen churches and partnership to evangelize all people. Last week in chapter 15, we saw how the church clarified and guarded what the true gospel of grace alone was. And towards the end of the chapter, Paul and Barnabas were back in Antioch of Syria teaching and preaching. 
But eventually, Paul's thoughts turned back to those churches that they had planted on the island of Cyprus and up in the region of Galatia and of the need to go there and to strengthen them and then possibly even take the gospel even farther. So Paul proposed a new trip to Barnabas, a second journey to take the gospel to the nations. And our passage begins with the formation of a new strategic partnership to do just that. We're going to consider chapter 15, verse 36, all the way to 16, verse 12, for our first point. And that marks the time between the forming of the partnership in Antioch of Syria and then arriving in the city of Philippi. Now, if you turn to page 13 on your bulletin, which, thank the Lord, you don't have to use as a fan this evening. Uh, If you turn to page 13, you'll see a map, and this is a map of Paul's second missionary journey. And we're taking the part of the journey this evening that starts there on the right side of the map at Antioch in Syria. It travels up and around to Tarsus and then west to Derby and to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. We read about Paul evangelizing in those cities during the first missionary journey. But then they go on up to Troas, which is on the Aegean Sea coast. And then they take a sailing ship up to the Neapolis coast, the city of Neapolis, and then eventually to Philippi. So at the very top of your map there, Philippi is where we'll end the sermon this evening in terms of where we are on the map. That might help you follow along. The first point this evening is partnership to strengthen churches. Partnership to strengthen churches. I'm gonna walk us through the story here in these verses and then I wanna consider one overall lesson that we can learn in this first section. The first thing that leaps off the page in verses 36 through 41 there, the tail end of chapter 15, is that the partnership of Paul and Barnabas is breaking up. And it doesn't seem to be simply based on a strategy. Barnabas wanted to take his cousin, John Mark, along again this time. John Mark had been along with Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey, the very first part of it. But Paul disagreed because John Mark had abandoned them halfway through the first journey. He had fled back to Antioch and then to Jerusalem. Verse 39 tells us that it was a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. We don't know if there were harsh words. We don't know what the conversations were like. Luke doesn't tell us. But it's sad to read about in some ways. Scripture doesn't really indicate if there was one person who was wrong and one who was right. Here they had stood together, unified in Jerusalem, and argued for the gospel of grace alone, and now they can't agree on a mutual traveling companion. Considering how dangerous and strenuous the journey is going to likely be, it's easy to see, to see Paul's point. I mean, how could they depend on John Mark? He'd left them before when the going got tough. But assuming that John Mark wanted to go, it's hard to imagine looking into his eyes with Barnabas and not wanting to give him a second chance, too. 
Barnabas' nickname wasn't son of encouragement for nothing. It's easy to see both sides, right? One commentator says, our judgment goes with Paul, but our heart agrees with Barnabas. So Paul and Barnabas agree to disagree. Barnabas and John Mark sail to Cyprus to work, strengthening the churches there, and that makes good strategic sense as well. Their families were originally from Cyprus, but that's the last we hear of Barnabas in the book of Acts, because Luke, our narrator, travels with Paul, and so it's Paul's journeys that we have recorded for us in the rest of the book. And Paul then chooses Silas to go with him. Silas, you'll remember, was the church leader from Jerusalem who was sent down to Antioch with the letter from the council. This is at the tail end of chapter 15. He was a prophet, and he helped to build up the church there in Antioch while he was there for some time. He stayed ministering there alongside Paul and Barnabas. Now, it is the last that we hear of Barnabas. But no doubt Paul and Barnabas knew that they were on the same team, regardless of where they were ministering the gospel. They were on God's team together. Through this disagreement, of course, in the Lord's sovereignty, he created two missionary teams rather than just one. So the Lord used it. So off they went, Paul and Silas, up through Syria and then west to the Galatian churches, but the team wasn't complete, it seems. When they arrived in Galatia, they met, and they added a young man named Timothy to the team. It says, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. Timothy's mother was a Jewish believer, but his father had been Greek, not a believer. Surprisingly, Paul had Timothy circumcised at this point. And that is surprising, especially given that in the last chapter, Paul had argued so strongly against the Jews who said that circumcision was necessary for salvation. How could Paul be against circumcision in one chapter and then for it in the next? The answer is that Paul was strongly against circumcision as being necessary for salvation, but he thought it would be helpful in ministry among Jews whose cultural practices still included circumcision. Circumcision wasn't sin, and so someone could be circumcised for practical reasons or even for ministry reasons like we have here. If Jewish Christians were demanding that Timothy get circumcised because they didn't think he was saved yet. They didn't think he was a brother in Christ. Well, Paul would have resisted that. But this was a decision to help Timothy in gospel ministry among the Jewish Christians of Galatia. Paul later writes to the Corinthian church in chapter nine of his first letter to them. He says, to the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. And to those under the law, I became one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. And then he sums up his thinking in verse 23 of that chapter. He says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Now, of course, Paul wasn't willing to sin 
in order to win others to Christ. That's not rational. It doesn't make any sense. By no means, Paul would have said, as he said in many of his letters. But Paul was willing to give up some freedoms in order to gain a hearing for the gospel, to adapt culturally. Let me give you a brief example that we might encounter in some places, even perhaps here in Dubai. Some Christians believe that women should keep their heads covered while in a worship service. That is their particular interpretation of a Bible passage in 1 Corinthians. When we've traveled with groups of people that included women to India, where this is common, we would ask women in our group to cover their heads during the worship service. Now, I don't think women need to cover their heads in worship. I don't have time to explain to you my interpretation of that passage right now. But we would do that when we are in those contexts in order to not cause unnecessary offense in those settings. We were asking the women to give up their rights to not wear head coverings in order to serve other people's sense of right and wrong, even if we disagreed with them. We should learn to think more selflessly, just like Paul. Are you willing to give up rights or privileges in Christ to serve others around you or possibly to advance the gospel? If you're around Christians, for example, who have struggled with abusing alcohol in their lives, or perhaps you're with people, Christians, who think it's necessarily a sin to drink alcohol, would you forfeit the privilege that we have to drink alcohol in order to be sensitive to a brother or sister in Christ? I hope you would. That would be doing exactly what Paul was doing here in this situation. But there's also a lesson here about the makeup of Paul's team. Paul was always looking for men younger in the faith to bring along with him so that they would learn from him, from his experiences that he would invite them into. Timothy is just that kind of a young man. How might you take on that kind of mindset to influence another person, perhaps someone even younger in the faith, by bringing them along with you when you do ministry. If you're a student leader on campus, for example, who is a student leader, a younger student, whom you can invite into, let's say, preparing a Bible study so that they can watch you and see how you do it, so that they can begin to imitate you? If you're a parent, you're going to have plenty of opportunities in the coming years to take your children along with you when you serve others so that they can learn how to be a Christian in different settings with different people so that they can learn to imitate you. Who might be your Timothy? Well, with Timothy added to the team, Paul and his partners shared the report from the Jerusalem Council with the churches in Galatia. And just like it said in chapter 15, verse 41, and it says in similar terms in 16.5, they were working to strengthen the churches, strengthening the churches in their faith. But after doing their strengthening work among the existing churches, their attention turned to starting more churches in more distant lands. Chapter 16, verses 6 to 12 gives us the account of how this newly founded missionary partnership made decisions 
about where to go next and how they eventually ended up in the Roman city of Philippi, which is where the rest of our chapter takes place. Interestingly, they must have initially wanted to go into regions more close by to them there in Galatia. Specifically, Asia is mentioned and Bithynia are mentioned. This is Asia that's different than the continent of Asia that we now know. But look at verses six and seven with me. Look there. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Twice, twice, the Spirit doesn't let them do ministry in the places that they wanted to go to. Now, just to be clear, the Holy Spirit in verse six and the Spirit of Jesus in verse seven are the same thing. It's just two different names for the same thing, the third member of the Trinity. We don't know why or how the Spirit prevented them from going to these places. I mean, Silas was a prophet. He received revelations from the Lord to give to the church. It could have been the Lord that gave him a prophecy. It could have been some inward sense that the Lord gave them together. We don't know. Luke doesn't tell us, but the Lord did give a guiding vision to Paul then in the middle of the night to go to the region of Macedonia across the Aegean Sea. It was just a vision of a Macedonian man saying, come and help us. And this is why they set out to go to Philippi immediately. Now let's go back and think a little bit about this ministry team that's formed and been being led by the Spirit as they go. How they came together and how did they make ministry decisions? The Lord guided them as He guides us in different ways. Oftentimes, the Lord guides us through simply making wise or practical decisions. We see Paul and Barnabas having a disagreement about the wisdom of bringing along John Mark. Each of them must have had a different goal in mind to guide them to the position that they took. And in the end, they decided it was best to separate because of the disagreement. It was just a question of differing viewpoints, different wisdom. The Lord in his providence used their disagreement to of course create these two missionary teams rather than one. We don't know why Paul picked Silas because it must have had to do with the fruitfulness that Paul saw in his ministry in Antioch. In addition, we learn later in the chapter that Silas is a Roman citizen and Paul might have been thinking about heading into lands where it would have been helpful to be a Roman citizen. Perhaps Paul factored that into his decision when he invited Silas along. Timothy's circumcision was a wisdom decision. It would be strategic advantage in their ministry and it it wasn't sin and so they did it. We don't know exactly how the Spirit prevented them from going into various lands, but it very well could have been an illness. It could have had to do with supplies that they didn't have or maybe it was weather or some other practical obstacle that kept them from going into those places God works through natural obstacles and natural opportunities alike. But God works through supernatural means as well, of course. And so he gave Paul a vision to guide them to Macedonia. And the Lord leads us when we consult together as well. We see that in this passage, in fact. Paul received the vision, but in verse 10 it says that together they concluded 
that the Lord was leading them to Macedonia. They must have discussed it. It was a group decision. Are you waiting for a vision from the Lord to know what to do? You might be waiting a long time. And if that's not coming, it's likely the Lord wants you to use wisdom and good advice from wise people around you in order to lead you. If it's a big decision, maybe it would be helpful to talk to and pray with an elder or another wise person that you know in the church. Whatever you do, pray, of course. They must have been praying all along. And certainly be open to God's supernatural leading, but be careful not to demand it from God. The Lord guides us often through wisdom. And only occasionally, maybe even I might say even rarely, through supernatural means. You know, so oftentimes when I've faced a very difficult decision, I've thought to myself, oh Lord, if you would just just send me a note with all the instructions step by step and what to do. You know, I think the Lord oftentimes doesn't want to do that for me, doesn't want to do that for you because he wants us to lean into our relationship with him. Think of what our relationship with him would turn into if all we were guided by was visions and messages from God. (laughs) We just wait for the delivery rather than pray and get to know him and read his word and seek wisdom. Well, by this point in the story, we can safely assume that Luke, the author of Acts, joined Paul's ministry team in the city of Troas. In verse 10, Luke begins to tell the story using the pronoun we. We, he says. And it's likely that Luke was a Macedonian. It could have been him that recommended that they go first to the leading city of Philippi. Again, there were, there's hints of a practical, wise, and strategic ministry decision that they made without specific directions from the Lord. The Macedonian man didn't say, come to Philippi. He said, come to Macedonia. So they had to decide what city you were going to go to. From here to the end of chapter 16 is what we'll look at in the second and final point in the sermon this evening, partnerships to evangelize all people. We see that in verses 13 through 40 in chapter 16. We see Paul and his partners share the gospel with a diverse set of primarily three people. More come to faith in addition to these three, but they're the ones that the Lord specifically wants us to learn about. And first of all, we meet Lydia. Lydia. In verses 13 through 15, we meet her. Paul and his partners go outside the city gates on the Sabbath day to find what Luke calls a place of prayer. Paul usually preached first in the Jewish synagogues when he entered a new city, but there must not have been a synagogue in Philippi. Still, if there were even a few Jews or maybe Gentiles like Lydia who worshiped the Lord God of Israel, there would have likely been a place in the city where those Jews and God-fearers gathered to pray on the Sabbath. And here in Philippi, that place was down by the riverside. And there they met Lydia, a seller of purple goods. Look at the second half of verse 14 with me. Luke doesn't waste any words telling us that the Lord opened her heart to what was said by Paul. The Lord was working in her. The Lord was going before Paul and Silas. 
Now it seems like her family was with her there at the riverside and they too turned to Christ with faith and the whole household was baptized. Lydia was likely a rich merchant because she obviously had room to invite all of Paul's team to come and stay at her home. Paul and his partners, of course, were simply carrying out their normal patterns of a faithful life of prayer and devotion with an openness and a hope to share the gospel at any moment. And the Lord brought about the salvation of a whole household in Philippi. The next conversion is much more dramatic. (laughs) The slave girl. The slave girl. In verses 16 through 24, It begins with Paul and his companions regularly making their way to the place of prayer. But a slave girl possessed with a demon began to pester them every time they went out into the city. Cruelly, her masters would make money from the spiritual bondage that she was trapped in and created by this indwelling demon in her by making her tell the fortunes of people. And then they would charge money for it. Evidently, the the demon could say something, knew something about people's lives. Much like the demons which Jesus confronted in his ministry, this demon pestered the apostles and his partners by declaring exactly what they were in Philippi to do. It says, they proclaim to you the way of salvation. (laughs) Now, it's the truth. But verse 8 says that Paul grew annoyed at her There's actually a better translation in it. Would be better to read it as he was grieved by her situation. And so he commanded, finally, the demon to leave her. Come out of her. And it did that very hour. Of course, that immediately ruined her owner's source of income. And when they realized that, they drug Paul and Silas into the marketplace, rallied a crowd and the leaders of the city to beat them with rods, And finally, they had them thrown in the deepest part of the jail. Now, oftentimes, people might be open to hearing about the gospel. They might even show some interest in trusting in Christ until until they learn that it might actually create some financial hardship in their lives. And then the true condition of their hearts is revealed. You may have noticed that I've implied that this slave girl has come to Christ. Now, it's not spelled out in our text. We don't really know, but it seems highly likely, and most commentators think that Luke wants us to draw this conclusion because he sandwiched her story in between the story of Lydia and then the jailer. And if she did, if she came to Christ, and we we hope she did, we hope we see her in heaven, She is a dramatically different kind of person who has joined this small band of new Christians in Philippi, a slave girl. She has no rights. Not even her body is her own. She is the poorest of the poor. Jesus Christ died for every kind of person that there is, the richest of the rich and the poorest of the poor. And the last conversion is just as surprising. The jailer. The jailer. As verse 25 through 34 begins, 
In what condition do we find Paul and Silas? They're in the deepest part of the jail. They're shackled. Were they weeping and asking God why he let them suffer a beating and now thrown in jail? Are they telling the other prisoners about the injustice of their situation? No, no. Look at verse 25 with me. This is one of the greatest verses in this passage. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. They had been beaten with rods, thrown in the deepest part of the jail. Do I even need to explain the application that we have to, that we can take from this single amazing verse? Praying, praise of God, and thanksgiving are appropriate at all times, especially in the midst of persecution and suffering. Nothing helps us see the worst of our situations in the light of God's love for us and his sovereign plans to use all circumstances for our good and for his glory than praying and praising and thanking God. How can you make singing and thanksgiving your default response to suffering and setbacks? One way that you can do that, of course, is by weekly practice. And you get that weekly practice when you come here. Every week, by just showing up and listening to God's word and singing maybe four songs like we sing tonight. On any given Saturday or next week Friday, someone is in here is going through a hard time. Someone has had a setback this week. Someone has gotten bad news. Someone, likely more than one of you, is struggling because maybe you're even being persecuted for your faith. Let these songs that we sing be your songs like Paul and Silas's. Songs that lift your thoughts to the faithfulness and the love of God for you in the midst of hardship. Songs that strengthen your faith. When you sing, when you sing these songs, do you believe the words you sing? Do you think about the words? Believe, trust. Declare it to yourself as you sing and declare it to those around you. What happened next was nothing less than a naturally occurring event created by our supernatural God. An earthquake struck. The prisoners' chains were broken, the doors were flung open, and of course it's a perfect answer to prayer, right? Paul and Silas can now make a run for it, but that's not the way Paul and Silas think of it. The jailer would have been executed had his prisoners escaped, and so when he saw the doors open, he drew his sword to take his own life. And Paul and Silas cry out to him to stop. They stop him in the act of suicide and within minutes he's gone from almost ending his life to receiving eternal life. Perhaps he had heard the songs of salvation through Christ that Paul and Silas were singing. Perhaps he had time to ask them more about the message they preached in the city. Either way, verses 30 and 31 are perhaps the simplest description of how someone comes to Christ. They ask the question, what must I do to be saved? And their answer, 
believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. If you're not a Christian, this is how simple it is to become a Christian. This is how simple it is. Do you believe in Christ? Do you understand that you have sin that makes you, makes you unholy in the presence of a holy God? Have you come to understand who Jesus is and what he went to the cross to die for, to be a substitute for you? If you would only trust in him to take your sins upon himself and offer eternal life to you and anyone, anyone who trusts in him, all you need to do is repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. It's that simple. If you do that, if you do that, whether it's here this evening or whether you do it in the coming weeks as you think about what you've heard at Covenant Hope Church or what you're reading in Scripture or what you hear from your Christian friend, oh, I would encourage you, tell us. Tell us about the decision you've made to trust in Jesus. Tell someone here at the church, let us celebrate with you and let us help you learn how to begin your new life of living for Christ. Paul and Silas were taken to the jailer's home. They shared the gospel with his family and they too trusted in Christ. They were all baptized and they rejoiced together. A jailer and his household were added to the church in Philippi. Verses 35 through 40 at the end of chapter 16 narrate Paul and his partners' final days in Philippi. The magistrates or leaders of the city order that they be released, but Paul and Silas suddenly make it known that they are Roman citizens, which means that the beating that they received and the jail sentence that they got were illegal. Now, they might have tried to tell the crowd that they were Roman citizens back when the crowd was beating them and rallying around them, but perhaps they weren't heard, we don't know. But as it is, the magistrates are scared of Paul and Silas at this point. And so they come and apologize and ask them to leave the city. And then, of course, Paul and Silas, and we suppose Luke and Timothy, had one last visit with Lydia and then they were off to another city to spread the gospel. The ministry in Philippi, preaching the gospel to all kinds of people. The beginnings of the church at Philippi are a wealthy female merchant and her family, a slave girl, poor but freed from demonic control, and a Roman jailer and his family. Different economic backgrounds, likely different ethnic backgrounds, all from dramatically different walks of life. And yet now they shared the greatest thing in common. They were Christians. They were Christians. Paul would later write to the church in Philippi. It's the book we have in the New Testament calling them partners in the ministry, partners in the gospel. He wrote praying that they would grow in love for one another. He wrote encouraging them to persevere under persecution. He wrote urging them to put their neighbor's needs above their own. He wrote challenging them to serve Christ side by side, not in competition with one another. 
And he wrote to them to not be anxious about anything, but to rejoice, to pray, and to give thanks to God in all situations. I encourage you to read that short New Testament book of Philippians this week. And when you do, when you do, see if these themes that I just mentioned are woven through this affectionate letter from the apostle to the Christians in Philippi. And as you read, think of Lydia. Think of the servant girl. Think of the jailer. And many more, many more who would be led to the Lord after Paul and his partners left that city. The Lord had worked through the gospel partnership of Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke to strengthen the existing churches that they had planted before and to evangelize all kinds of people in a new place, which created a new gospel partnership in Philippi. It's called a church. May God use us for the same kind of ends here in Dubai and maybe even beyond. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the gospel, the gospel that's freed us from our slavery to sin, the gospel that's given us the hope and the promise of being a part of the new creation forever and ever with you. In Christ's name, amen.